1: In the midst of a trade war that touches on technology, could open-source chips be part of the solution?
2: The norms around using ARM and Intel's chips are being frayed, and into this breach has stepped an open-source version of these blueprints, which is called RISC-V.
1: Statisticians versus nutritionists. The rights and wrongs of eating red meat.
3: This may be as good as we're going to get in terms of quality of evidence about meat and cancer and cardiovascular disease.
1: And could we see a sort of Geneva Convention for
4: technology? Look at what is happening in the world today with cyber attacks. We need to
1: restore the kinds of rules that we established in the 20th century. You're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, your host. So first, chips, those little slabs of silicon that keep everything running from your phone to your bank to your airplane to the infrastructure of cities. Up until now, just two firms have had a dominance on the majority of chips that are used in our devices, Intel in the United States and Arm, which was founded in Europe and is now Japanese-owned. This duopoly has made chips a hugely important factor in the U.S.-China trade war. In 2018, China imported $300 billion worth of semiconductors or its intellectual property. The country is keen to become less reliant on foreign imports, so could open-source technology provide an answer? Hal Hodson is the Economist Asia technology correspondent, and he joins me down the line from Hong Kong. Hello, Hal.
2: Hi there, Ken.
1: So first... Let's talk about who these big two dominant players are and what they're doing.
2: Sure. So when you make a chip, it's one of the most complex things that human beings make. Um, And first, you've got to get some sand and melt it into silicon and make that into a wafer. But then you've also got to design the architecture that is used to move electrons around on that chip and actually do the calculations that makes your chip run. And um, there's a sort of shortcut that you can use, which is called an instruction set architecture. If you think about chips as a house, these are the blueprints of the house. They're what you start with, and then you build on, you know, you can add whatever fancy features of your house you want. But each chip starts from the same architecture, and there's two. One of them is run by Intel. It's called x86. Um, and the only way to get one of those, really, is to buy a chip from Intel or one of the very few companies that has a license to make it. The other one is uh, run by ARM. And ARM basically sells access to its chip designs. And so, for instance, inside the new iPhone, the iPhone 11, there is an A-series CPU, and that is built with ARM chip designs. And so these two companies, for the last really 20 years, they've really been the only games in town in order to make chips at scale commercially. That's not what's changing.
1: Now, the interesting thing is that this was a very good accommodation for the industry for many decades because people could innovate in the ways that they'd like to, but they could simply buy in the technology that they needed. Why is that sort of grand bargain fraying?
2: The grand bargain is fraying for a number of reasons. I mean, it was extremely efficient to have just one sort of blueprint whether if you're a mobile phone you've got one blueprint it's ARM, if you're a PC or a server you've got one blueprint it's Intel. That was really efficient because it meant that everybody who was writing the software were on known territory. There's a few different difficulties. One is that the rate at which new chips are built that shrink the size of the circuits is going down, and it's harder and harder to build chip that do more computation. This means that the industry is casting around for other ways to boost the performance of their chips. Um, The second thing is that there's a trade war on, and China is one of the biggest consumers of chips, but it also wants to make more and more of these chips, and one of the things that has happened recently, which our listeners will be aware of, is that the U.S. government has tried to basically stop American companies exporting technology to Huawei, which is one of the biggest Chinese tech companies. It's a telecoms giant. It makes uh, networking equipment and is sold all over the world. And so the upshot of this is that the norms around using ARM and Intel's chips are being frayed from all directions. And into this breach has stepped an open source version of these blueprints, which is called RISC-V.
1: Okay, So talk to me about RISC-V. And when we say open source, what do we actually mean?
2: Yeah. So it's a little confusing. The only thing that is open source in this instance is the instruction set architecture. And that is the sort of basic blueprint that governs how you are going to design your chip. So that sits on a server that is controlled by something called the RISC-V Foundation, And so it's this blueprint that is open source. So say I'm a startup and I want to make some chips before... I would have had to go to ARM, have some meetings, like negotiate over a contract to get a license to use ARM's designs. That would have taken months or maybe even a couple of years. And so before I'm even able to start making anything as a startup, I'm having to have this long discussion with just one company. And so the beauty with risk is that you just download the instruction set and you start designing your chip. There's no conversations. There's nothing to pay. There's no contracts to sign. That's the beauty of open source.
1: So this sounds like a wonderful thing, but the question is, Is it going to be good for consumers? And is it going to crush Intel and
2: ARM? Uh, Crush Intel and ARM is a little bit hyperbolic. It's definitely not going to do that anytime soon. Uh, ARM is definitely worried about it. Uh, The reason for this is that the forthcoming grand Internet of Things, which basically just means chips in lots of different things that talk to each other, like, you know, your home appliances or your sneakers. ARM had seen that as its next revenue growth opportunity. But risk five is pretty competitive there because we don't really know what those chips are gonna look like. And so if you're a, a startup in wherever, China or Taiwan or Japan, and you have the great next idea for you know building Internet of Things stuff, you're quite likely to end up using RISC-V because it's cheaper and it's easier to get started.
1: So what are the drawbacks of using open source software? Of course, someone could be fearful that the code is a little bit iffy and that the intellectual property is not perfectly clear.
2: Well, you kind of have to rule Intel out because they just make everything themselves. They're a fully integrated provider of chips. So it's really ARM that we're talking about here. But when you buy designs from ARM... It also comes with all this support from ARM, all these tools that help you take the instruction set that you've licensed from them and build it into a functional working chip. And that work is, it's really difficult, it's not easy to do that, so ARM has a sort of an existing ecosystem that supports its designs, whereas Risk Five is way behind in that regard. It doesn't have the same level of tooling available. It's just harder and requires more skills to take the Risk Five instruction set and make a chip from it. But it's because it's open source, it means that there's kind of a community being built around Risk Five, and this includes big companies like Huawei and Google and Nvidia all of them see the benefits of being able to be more flexible in designing their chips.
1: So do you think that this is an interesting opportunity for Chinese companies to use these instructions, innovate around it, and create a viable competitor in the area of, say, 5G, or at least Internet of Things stuff? That'll be sort of the next great third pole in chip making
2: yeah I do think there's an opportunity for that and Chinese companies have been some of the strongest adopters Alibaba's chip team announced in July that it had produced its first RISC-V chip Uh, the Shanghai municipal government is funding chip startups that use RISC-V Huawei the much embattled famous telecoms company it has its own team of developers working on RISC-V and I do think that the prospect here is that you have this diversified boom of different kinds of chips.
1: That sounds really great. But it also seems like we're in an environment whereby a spillover effect of the trade war is that it is enabling or is it fueling the incentive of Chinese companies to innovate faster and become bigger powerhouses to be more self-sufficient in technology which is against, of course, the interests of the United States.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the reporting I've done, it seems like some of the American moves have been almost productive to their goals here. If they really wanted to shut down Huawei, they needed to try harder than this. And one of the things to note is that RISC-V is by far from the first bit of open source technology that Chinese tech companies have taken advantage of. Think of Android. You know, there's tens of millions of Android phones sold in China every year. None of them have any Google technology on them. They just have open-source Android software, which is maintained by Google, but it's not really a Google product. And so open-source has already given Chinese tech companies a gigantic boost, and RISC-V is kind of, you know, if it works out the way that it looks like it's working out, then the same thing is going to happen, but in chips, which is the most fundamental sort of component of the tech supply chain, the one that China is the most worried about with this huge $300 billion trade deficit.
1: That's really fascinating. Hal, thank you very much.
2: Sure thing, Ken. Always good to be on.
1: And you can read more about the future of Risk 5 chips in an upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our podcast, you'll love our weekly newspaper. To subscribe, just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Next up, is red meat good for you or is it bad for you? The consensus among public health bodies is that overindulging in steaks and sausages and bacon can increase the risk of various illnesses from heart disease to cancer. But this week, a new meta-study was published which reviewed much of the work in this area. To the outrage of nutritionists, it concluded that the evidence was too weak to justify changing your diet. Gordon Guyett is a doctor and a professor of health research methods at McMaster University in Ontario. He is a co-author of the new study, and he joins me down the line from Canada. Hello, Gordon. Hello. So you recently produced research that shows that eating red meat is not such the problem that people thought it was. Why is that?
3: Well, the research that we reviewed um, showed that observational studies where they compare people who eat meat to people who eat less meat or no meat do show a an association with cardiovascular disease and with cancer however these observational studies are often very limited and often they are reversed when higher quality studies show no associations when associations were previously shown in observational studies. So what we found, first of all, that there is only low quality evidence supporting the adverse influence of red and processed meat on health outcomes. That's the first thing. Second, we found that even if it is true, which it may not be, that red and processed meat do cause cancer and cardiovascular adverse events, the effect is very small. Why did you decide to look into studies of red meat? The colleague, uh, guy who did a postdoc with me, Brad Johnston, who's now out in Halifax, has decided to focus his career on nutrition and to focus his career in particular on trying to produce trustworthy nutritional recommendations. He and I agree with him believe that most of the nutritional recommendations that are out there at the moment do not meet standards for trustworthy guidelines and we've developed these standards of scientific standards for trustworthy guidelines over the last 20 years and most nutritional guidelines are deficient. And a fresh look needs to be taken. And the first one he decided to take on was red and processed meat. And I was keen to help him out.
1: Now, there's a substantive argument that is launched, which is that you have overstepped your bounds because you're not a nutritionalist from a substance from a substantial point of view. Why does that not hold merit? I hear you laughing.
3: Um, Yes, that is amusing. First of all, I'm a physician, I practice general internal medicine, and I am a methodologist. And so we believe, rightly or wrongly, that if you have a broad knowledge of health issues, that you can look at the evidence on any particular health issue and make reasonable inferences about the quality of the evidence. And I sit on many, many guideline panels in many content areas and feel highly equipped. And the people who join me in those panels uh, respect my views on interpretation of evidence. That's one thing. Second thing is, in these reviews, we don't work alone. So, uh, we have, there were probably about 40 or 50 people involved in accumulating this very large body of evidence, and then ultimately a panel making the guidelines, and it included plenty of nutritional experts. So, it was teamwork that involved methodologists, frontline clinicians, uh, and nutrition experts, as well as the panel as community members.
1: Now, do you feel that your research is the
3: final word on the topic? Or if not, what would the gold standard be? Within science, as far as I can tell, there is never a final word. However, this may be as good as we're going to get in terms of quality of evidence about meat and cancer and cardiovascular disease. The reason is the observational studies are always limited because the people who eat red meat and the people who don't may differ in dozens or hundreds of ways, and one of those other ways may be actually responsible for the weak association. So maybe uh, investigators will be able to pull off the randomized trials, that would settle the issue. So the bottom line is, this is the best that we know up to now. Ideally, there could be randomized trials that would sort out the issue definitively, but the obstacles to doing them are very daunting, and we may be stuck with low-quality evidence indefinitely.
1: But alongside Gordon's points, a lot of concerns remain. A representative from the World Cancer Research Fund responded that people's lives could be put at risk if they concluded that they could eat meat to their heart's content. Nita Faroui is a professor of popular health and nutrition at the MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge.
5: Nutrition researchers and public health uh, agencies have a number of problems. One is that the study claims that the magnitude or the size of the impact of reducing meat is so small as to be meaningless. And I absolutely disagree with that. That's one. And the second is that they say, even if the size was meaningful, the quality of the evidence is uncertain and it is not causal link, meaning they say it's a correlation because of the quality of the studies. So these are two big uh, problems that the nutritional research community cannot agree with. And what I, as a nutritional epidemiologist, would say is that We need to put this in context because once you scale it up to a country level, like the United Kingdom, you are talking about being able to reduce tens if not hundreds of thousands of premature deaths, cardiovascular disease, particularly heart attacks, cancer, and type 2 diabetes. And on the issue that they say about it is not causal because the quality of the evidence is weak, well, there's no, we can't magic up Uh, a sort of study that simply isn't possible for public health interventions. So I think we have to be realistic. We have to go with the best available evidence at the time. Now, many of us in the field are trying to come up with solutions to measure diet in a better way. Currently, we rely on people telling us what they ate. We know we're the first ones to acknowledge that that is notoriously challenging. So we're looking at markers in the blood, we're looking at markers in the urine, but until all of that is available, we really do have to go with the best available evidence. And it is potentially very damaging for public health if we come up with negating perfectly good evidence appraisal that has been done before, on which we have current guidelines to cut down on the intake of red and processed meat. I'd also like to say while there are benefits to uh, individuals and to society in health terms we cannot ignore the effects of uh, diets that are high in red and processed meat on the planet itself because animal production lifestyle production uh, you know contributes masses to greenhouse gases and ultimately to climate change and that's a major problem as well so we cannot divorce that issue
1: Our thanks to Gordon Guyatt and Nita Farui. And as the saying goes, and we can all agree, more research is needed.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: As technology becomes a bigger part of our lives, it is raising mainstream public policy issues. But how can we ensure that it is used for beneficial and not nefarious ends? This is a question that Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, has spent his career considering. For decades, he was the company's general counsel. He has seen it go from defendant in antitrust cases to this week making a big push into hardware. And he has now put forward his views on the ethics of technology— Brad is the co-author of a new book titled Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. I began by asking Brad what he meant by the phrase tools and weapons.
4: Digital technology has become a tool and a weapon. In reality, almost any tool can be a weapon. A broom can be used to sweep the floor. It can be used to hit somebody over the head. The more powerful the tool, the more formidable the weapon. Digital technology is a powerful tool It has become a formidable weapon.
1: Now, one way we try to regulate weapons is with conventions, and you've called for a digital Geneva Convention.
4: What does that mean? At its heart, the concept, I think, is relatively straightforward. Four years after World War II, the governments of the world came together. They adopted the Fourth Geneva Convention. It imposed not just a moral responsibility but an international legal duty on governments— to protect civilians, even in times of war. And yet look at what is happening in the world today with cyber attacks, with cyber weapons. We see governments attacking civilians in what is supposed to be a time of peace. We need to restore through a new generation of rules, the kinds of rules that we established in the 20th century.
1: International conventions are
4: always honored in the breach. This is just gonna be a piece of paper. I think the first question one has to ask is, in effect, the question you're posing. Will it make a difference? We would argue that fundamentally it will. If you want to deter governments from engaging in certain conduct that threatens stability or peace, the first thing you have to do is establish the principle that it is a violation. It doesn't mean that it will bring international offenses to an end any more than the enactment of laws by itself ends all crime on our streets. But you can't end crime on the streets if the conduct isn't criminal in the first
1: place. And the same thing applies to governments in cyberspace. Now, it's interesting that Microsoft is putting this forward because you're in some ways very practiced and experienced with working with governments. When we first met two decades ago, it was because you were under the cosh of the U.S. government. Do you think that government scrutiny limited Microsoft's growth at all?
4: I think that government scrutiny did play a role in the direction of Microsoft's Products. Um, There were government rules put in place, for example, to ensure there would be more opportunities for other companies' browsers. In effect, there were rules that were created to uh, set some restraints on how the Windows operating system could be used. And I think that that did have an effect on Microsoft and the entire industry.
1: Now, when people think of tools and weapons and Microsoft's new focus on AI... AI scares the bejesus out of people. Some people feel that autonomous weapons are on the horizon and that American technology companies shouldn't abet that. How does Microsoft think through these issues internally?
4: Artificial intelligence will be an incredibly powerful and important tool for addressing many of society's great challenges. Uh, I think it really compels us to start with a set of ethical principles. That's what we've done at Microsoft. Um, As we describe in our book, There was a journey. We identified and developed six ethical principles to address issues like bias and privacy and safety and inclusion, the broad need for transparency and accountability. We then need to operationalize these principles. We need public policies. We need laws that will make these principles applicable to All companies that are developing or deploying artificial intelligence.
1: Now, companies like Google have said that they wouldn't actually supply their technology to the U.S. military, in large part because of their employees saying that that wasn't what they signed up for. And in some instances, that's also because the employees from overseas who don't even feel any allegiance to America, that they feel like actually that's a non-starter for them. Microsoft is also a global company, but it comes to a different conclusion about how it's going to furnish its technology. How is it that you think through these ethical issues?
4: One of the things we really tried to share in the book is a candid aspect, really, of the journey we've been on. When we think then about something like AI and the military, AI and weapons, that journey really brought us to two conclusions. The first is, We want to, and we will, provide all the technology we create to the United States government, to, say, most of the NATO allies, to the world's democracies, where we have a level of confidence in the fundamental human rights and democratic freedoms that are in place. At the same time, we don't think that that is the end of the story. We concluded that we should play an active role as a corporate citizen, using our voice to share information on the potential risks of the technology, to offer our views, our ideas even, on the kinds of principles that should be applied by the military to ensure the ethical use of artificial intelligence, to ensure safety, transparency, and above all else,
1: that weapons remain under meaningful human control. I wonder how that would work in practice insofar as once you've sold a piece of software like Microsoft Word, someone could write The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, or The Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx. Can you really control the technology that you sell? Well, I think actually that's the point
4: that we make. We cannot control what a government does once the technology leaves our hands. And I'd even go as far as to say, and we weren't elected to do so. But in the United States, the Congress was. The Congress should control how the military uses this new generation of weapons. What we should do among other things, is share information so that the people elected by the people in our legislatures have the information needed to make informed decisions. We should use our voice to encourage legislators to think hard and really advance the kinds of responsible controls, I think the kinds of controls that most people in the public want to see. Have you ever turned down a customer? Absolutely. I think that that actually is a really important question. Because if you're principled but have never turned down a customer, then I might argue that really the only principle you're following is that you'll make as much money as you can by selling your product to anybody who will pay for it. We have to accept that there will be days when authoritarian regimes that we turn down will turn to other providers. It is why we really argue emphatically in the book that these issues around data and technology have become one of the most important human rights issues of our time. Uh, it's why we believe that this needs to be a topic that is pursued by the technology sector as a whole. Certainly, the technology sector in, say, the United States and, and, and Western Europe. Um, you know, it's why we believe we should create international standards, ultimately international legal rules, to try to protect people uh, from these kinds of risks. Brad Smith, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Cuquier, and in London, this is The Economist.